Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. You will be very glad to know that Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor are back, although you may have been wishing for more Bob Inc. all the time. But Bob Inc. has left the building, and Colin and Justin are back. So you can determine whether that's a good swap or not. It's not a fair trade. Not at all. And just so people know, more people listen to that episode than any other episode we've ever done of Laughing Books and Everything. So I think we found the formula. Less of me and Justin. Well, more of Kevin and Bobby. And, and more of um, Scottish accents, people from across the pond. I guess they were, they were tired of our Midwestern shtick. <laughs> well, it's back. It's back and better than ever. All right. We are glad to have Crossway once again as our sponsor. We are very grateful for them, their partnership, and the fine resources that they publish. We want to mention today the ESV Scripture Journals. There are a number of options. The regular Scripture Journals, Old Testament, New Testament sets, also sold individually, ESV Illuminated Scripture Journals, which are illuminated, and uh, Greek Scripture Journals, which is very cool, with uh, the Greek Scripture Journal New Testament set with the Greek New Testament produced by Tyndale House, Cambridge, with added space for notes in the margins. These are great for people who love to take notes in their Bible. People who want to listen to sermons, your pastor's going through a book of the Bible and you get one of the scripture journals and you want to take notes right there as you're listening to him preach. And uh, maybe for people refreshing on their Greek or new students learning the language, it's a great way to take notes alongside passages in the original Greek or pastors preparing for sermons. So check out the ESV scripture journals. Uh, Justin. Do you journal? Not not necessarily with those, but just curious. There there are two types of uh, you know Christians: the ones who journal and provide ample evidence for future biographers, and those who don't. And the god ungodly shallow type. Yeah, I'm in the latter category. I, <laughs> I don't journal. I have a few journals. If anybody were to uh, go through my files and find. Many started journals that begin January 1st. Dear journal, I probably won't continue doing this for many more days, but and then it kind of drops off a few days later. So I, I like to take notes when I read and write in margins, but I've I've never been a dedicated sort of notebook journaler. I, you guys? Well, I did some I journaled for a season in college, and uh I think I I, I needed to be in that introspective moody sort of not that everyone who journals is introspective and moody but for me it it fit but it didn't last for very long when everything shut down with covid i heard lots of people saying uh start a journal record what you're seeing what you're feeling what you're experiencing this is you're going to want to go and show that to your grandkids someday it's going to be really interesting i did that for a few days and then i thought this is an ending. And then, then I decided I'd do it once a week. I did that for maybe a, a month or so. And I realized, well, this is going to keep going for a long time. And uh, so I don't know, I, I will have uh, like six journal entries that will be a real treasure trove for my grandchildren someday. Colin, what about you? 
I took a class in seminary on pastoral theology. We had to read a Eugene Peterson book, and I think the professor's comment back to me was, do you have any kind of uh, interior life? <laughs> I was like, wow, that was to the point. I think it was the first assignment in the class as well. I guess I wasn't in the quite uh, quite the right mood. Now, you'd think for somebody who writes as much um, that I would journal more, but it's never been it's never been natural to me. I've I've prayed sometimes in written form in the past, but that's been quite a while now. So for some reason, I just don't I just don't do that. So I guess if anybody wants to know what I think, they're going to have to listen to these podcasts. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Justin, it's not a, a a secret that John Piper is a prolific journaler, and it's always amazed me because he you know, for years is writing sermons, he's writing books, he's writing blogs. And I, I genuinely enjoy writing. But when it comes to a journal every day, uh, when I've, when I've tried, it just feels like, uh, one, one more thing on my writing assignment that I have to get done. Now I got to write in this journal. Uh, have you ever talked to John about that? I mean, he, he must not have felt that way about journaling. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think he thought of it as here's a, a duty that I have to do, but here's something that helps me to think. He said many times that he doesn't know what he thinks until he writes uh, to hold a complex argument in your head or to kind of work out implications or definitions or nuances. So he is the sort of person who uh, he said before that he would write the same number of books, even if no one ever published them. And I think the journals are probably similar for him. Uh, not just narrating what he's feeling on a particular day, but also trying to work out theological problems and make observations and uh, try ideas out to see what they look like and what they sound like. So yeah, I don't Do think for Piper it ever felt like a, a duty or a have to do, but something that he, he wanted to do because it helped him. I, I wonder, his life is obviously going to play out very differently, but I think about that with Bonhoeffer. So much of what we have of Bonhoeffer with these journals that are filled with a lot of speculation. It's very hard to reconstruct his theology as a result mm. of that. What do you think that might mean for John Piper? As people look back, are they just going to be able to see a pretty natural progression and understand how it all fits together like a puzzle piece? Or are they going to open their eyes and say, whoa, <laughs> this gives me a whole new perspective uh, on what he was thinking, or maybe a, even a scary one. Yeah, I don't think that it would be uh, in in terms of some massive revelation or some completely different John Piper. Uh, but when you're talking about somebody like Bonhoeffer, whose life, yeah, he, he lived the number of days that the Lord appointed for him, but he did not right. live a long life. So right. it, it's more of a fragmentary record of what he believed, what he thought in any particular day. So I think any time that you have someone like a Martin Luther King or a Bonhoeffer, somebody who's who lived, you know, what we we re, what we would regard as half of a life of a long life, then it ends up being more fragmentary where somebody like Piper has published so much in print unless there's some secret struggle behind the scenes, uh, I think there ends up being more continuity where when it's a more fragmentary approach, you can have more ambiguity or more revelations because they, they didn't make a certain struggle public or a certain strain of thought. But, you know, this relates to Edward's studies as well, because 
now we're picking apart everything that Edwards ever wrote and said. And some of the things that he didn't intend for publication or didn't think it was ready for publication primetime would it have had more nuance? What if it had been, you know, what we would say today, workshopped more, kind mm. of thought through, gotten more feedback? Um, so there is some danger in going back to a journal of an Edwards and saying, you know, this is what he thought. Well, it may have been what he was musing about uh, one night by the candlelight at midnight and and not what he would have said in a sermon or a lecture or, or in a print book. Justin, can you give us the uh, the line you were telling us that Fred Sanders shared this exact quote from Jonathan Edwards? <laughs> I don't know if this was in his journals or some letter somewhere, but this is a per- perhaps a reason to keep some thoughts on the inside. Do you have that in front of you? Justin. We yeah, lost this Justin. was uh, there he is. I'm here. Uh, this was uh, Edwards, I think, declining or or presenting his qualms to Princeton College about why he would not make a good president, and he he ultimately felt divinely led to do it, and was confirmed by friends and family, and then ended up dying after a smallpox inoculation. But he said to them, "I have a constitution in many respects peculiarly unhappy, attended with flaccid solids." <laughs> vapid, sizey, and scarce <laughs> fluids, and a low tide of spirits. Oh, I, and they said I, you sound perfect to be a college president. <laughs> no wonder, up. no wonder the uh, marriage to a difficult man book was published. Yeah, but that was back in the day when people talked very freely about their solids. You you, you read some <laughs> of Calvin's last letters, and it's a little bit TMI. You could Luther. have just. Yeah, that's where later Victorian sensibilities came in to just, you know, let's just use some euphemisms. All right, but we weren't going to talk about flaccid solids. We'll do a whole episode sometime on John Hel- John Calvin's health. <laughs> we <laughs> well, will. It'll be even more popular than the Bob Inc. episode, <laughs> I promise. It will be. Okay, I have no way to make a good transition into a serious topic. So... Um, Pause. Serious. Okay, here we go. Uh, Last week, well, it it seems like every week in 2020 is some hard news, some bad news. And uh, last week with First Christianity Today had an article, later uh, follow-up podcast, and then World did a little more reporting, um, talking about the the allegations against Ravi Zacharias passed away a, a few months ago. And uh, I, I want to use this as a springboard, not so much to talk about the particulars of the allegations against Ravi uh, related to sexting allegations and these uh, inappropriate behavior that's hardly the right you know, serious enough euphemism for it if the allegations are true, but uh, moral turpitude at these spas. But it causes us to reflect once again on what, 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 what are we doing? What, what, you know, there, but by the grace of God, go I. We always want to, you know, give a proper expression of our our own sense of fallenness. But insofar as we've learned anything. Colin and Justin, what what sort of things are you doing in your own life to protect your life, your your marriage, your walk with the Lord? 
what sort of lessons have we learned? I mean, we could go through a litany of fallen leaders, some of whom were or are friends, uh, some who have died, some who are still trying to make a comeback in ministry. So there's too many stories to profitably want to recount. And I'd, I'd like us to at least reflect for a few minutes on what we learn from them. But before we do that, I wonder, do you think that these sort of catastrophic falls, and let's just you know put out there, we don't know, we don't, I don't have any inside information on, on Ravi Zacharias just dealing with the allegations that are out there. And at this point, as best as we can tell, it seems hard to think of a counter story to the to the one that's there. But we reserve final judgment, and hopefully, um, the ministry will be providing more information as they can. But do you think this is happening more often than it used to? I mean, is that that's what you hear? This is uh, the way we have celebrity pastors or Big Eva or evangelical industrial complex. That's why this is happening. Or do we just hear about it more because of our connected world? What do you think, Colin? I don't think this is the interesting answer. I think we're just hearing about it more. Uh, one thing that's brought the three of us together is those friendships, but then also our our love and interest in evangelical history. And there are exceptions. Billy Graham is certainly an exception when it comes to money and when it comes to sex, but he wasn't an upset an exception when it came to family. I mean, he and Ruth had a strong marriage, but the kids had a really difficult time there. I mean, you could just keep looking. There's been a lot of major challenges for evangelical leaders. And, uh, and a lot of why we don't know about them is because we've forgotten or just never taken the time to look. So, I do think we're struggling a bit from a, a case of presentism, but that doesn't lessen any of the concern, I guess. So, and it's also not particular to evangelicals, and yet, nevertheless, it's a major problem. I, I'm wondering, Kevin, you guys, you've just read Paul Tripp's book, Lead, and we've talked about that book a lot, the three of us personally, and I think it's dead on when it comes to turning the attention away from the individual into the community. And I think in almost every case, you could see some of these things coming and you could see it in community. So let's take, take the Ravi Zacharias piece as an example. We're not trying to dwell on this, but we're going off some of the reports that we've, that we've seen uh, reportedly that he didn't, didn't have any friends or nobody that he could trust to talk about these things. There's been no mention of any church involvement, uh, no, no pastor that we've seen anything from. You have a ministry that bears your name and where a number of family members are on the payroll or on the board. You can talk about this as a particular thing with Ravi, but it seems pretty clear there's a bigger community dimension going on. What did you think, Kevin, about that aspect of, of Paul Tripp's book um, about behind every leadership failure is a, is a failure of leadership community? That's the real genius of the book and uh, plug to your fine podcast interview with Paul about it. 
where he's really following up from dangerous calling in this book lead to say it's 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 the lack of friends it's the it's the network it's the the failure to have gospel community around a man now there's at the end of the day there's no foolproof scenario that keeps us all out of sin but one of the things that we see with these is with these sad examples it's not like it's not like everyone is going to say oh i you know everything i knew about him was was terrible you know whatever the situation may be there there will always be people for whom say oh this doesn't look like anything of the person i knew and so it's a reminder to me to not just you know ensure that there are some people out there that would say oh you know kevin DeYoung's a great guy and i got i got nothing but good things to say about him but what about the people who see the the, the sinful part of me and, and the ugly side of things do they have such a place in my life that they'd be able to speak into it, that they'd be able to say something. And I do think that one of the reminders is there's a massive danger. The the more authority you are given or accrued that you only put people around you who, who are going to affirm you, who are going to, you know, maybe their, their job depends upon you. Maybe their platform depends upon you. And you have an unhealthy environment where people only want to tell you things that you want to hear. And I'm, you know, want to be appropriately nervous that I would ever have that sort of relational ecosystem around me because it doesn't serve me. And, you know, you don't have to be world famous like Ravi Zacharias was. It can be in your own little church world that you can create this sort of structure around you. And the three of us have talked that I do think sometimes there's a peculiar danger for those who are, whether it's leading their own, you know, heading, headlining their own ministry, or often church planters are peculiarly in danger of this because they may have as their leaders the very people that they led to Christ. They may tend to be all younger. It's hard to make that transition to see that you're no longer their father in the faith but you're now a peer or you actually submit yourself to their leadership. So I think those sort of situations lend themselves to unhealthy dynamics. Not that you can't in a traditional church, but there are some things if you come into a church setting and you're 30 years old and they have 60 year old elders who have been around the block a time or two and aren't on the internet, you know, seeing your latest, greatest, post or tweets, they're going to be a lot less likely to, you know, blow smoke wherever you blow smoke and hold you accountable. Another element here is just the number of days on the road. Mm -hmm. Um, I hear this about musicians a lot of how much divorce and difficulty they face. There's a commonality there of being on the road. Um, And also difference between being a pastor and a speaker like this as a pastor ideally will be in one place long enough for the people to not be impressed with him. Uh, whereas a speaker can that go is from... true with being a pastor. <laughs> that can, you can go from place to place and always be the star when you're a speaker. And uh, with your greatest hit too. Yeah. That, and you, and that goes one 
great talk and people at your home church like they've heard you're you're good you're bad and you're ugly in terms of your delivery and your content and and moods i mean you're you can go all the way back to evangelical history this is george whitfield i mean how you can perfect a sermon when you preach it hundreds of times i want to hear more of justin's thoughts here but kevin I want to ask you a follow-up we've known each other for a long years all, all three of us and have been friends for a long time enough to see a lot of life change enough to see a lot of change with our friends as well um but kevin i wonder is that a trait that you would consider would be a strong suit of yours about having friends for a long time actually heard from one of your friends recently who told me that i should ask you about the cereal dance um i should get you to talking to about that (laughs) i just i have my sources you know me you know me kevin i'm a journalist i have my sources Uh uh-huh but you, you have friends going all the way all the way back to seminary. They didn't know you as Kevin DeYoung writing all these books, pastoring a big church, interviewing famous authors about Bob Vink. They knew mm-hmm. you as a goofy seminary student. But I, I don't friendship it doesn't come easy. But it seems like you've been able to keep some really long term friendships. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah, I mean the pastor needs friends and needs friends in his church, but you're going to need friends outside of your church too. So, I mean, I have, uh, I have two very good friends from high school. We don't see each other all that often, but we, uh, we climbed a 14er in Colorado a few years ago. So we do when we can. And, you know, one of those friends is we were in the same kindergarten class together. So he's, he's my, my longest lasting friend and uh, friends from college. And then you alluded to these friends from seminary. They were a group of us, nine in total. And uh, we're getting together in three weeks. We get together every fall. Uh, just be six of us this time. And yeah, those guys know all of the, I have lots of strange things about me, the serial dance being one of them. We'll have to save that for uh, another time. Something to look forward to. Yes. And um when I'm there, they call me by the worst nickname that I have been given, which is Celine. Because when I was de Young is a very common name where I'm from among oh, Dutch people. But they oh, heard it and they all thought it was yeah. Dion. So they called me <laughs> Celine Dion. So it's still it I don't even when I'm around them, I don't even think of it. They're like, Hey Celine, where do you want to go for dinner? And it's like, That's me. I'm Celine. So Celine with the celiacs. Yeah, that's right. So it does help. And then I, you know, talk to you guys more than is healthy, uh, and have other friends. I mean, I that's think it, it's not it's not foolproof, but it's really important. Justin, how how do you see this? What sort of you know, I know none of us want are trying to put ourselves up as the example in all these things, but any lessons that you've learned or you've reflected on some of these uh, catastrophically difficult falls and allegations we've seen? Yeah. With regard to your original question, it's really hard to figure out, is this happening more frequently or are we just hearing about it because of how connected we are all to social media? I think one facet of it has been that, um, victims feel more empowered to mm-hmm. make their allegations public, whereas that might not have been true 10 years ago, less true 20 years ago. Farther back you go, I think the harder that was for somebody to come forward. Uh, another thing that strikes me is that you think of the triumvirate of sex, money, and power. And it's I think it's always been the case that if you were involved in a sex scandal 
if you got caught embezzling money. You know, that's an objective thing. But in some strange way, it's been encouraging that there have been church discipline uh, issues of, of pastors and, and failure and fallout from abuse of power. I don't think that that was happening as much in the past. I mean, the, the abuse of power was, but the ability to hold somebody f- to account for that. So those are maybe a couple of counterintuitive ways to look at uh, whether we're just hearing about it more or I don't think that necessarily the, the amount of sin is increasing, but I think the amount that we're hearing about it um, is increasing. And I I don't think there's any foolproof way uh, for us to prevent it or uh, to prevent it from our friends. Um, you can always deceive people. Mm-hmm. You can always be doing something from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. on some device that's not connected to Covenant Eyes. You know, if you want, if you want to fool those around you, you can. I don't know that you can do it forever, but there's apart from some sort of uh, having a polygraph in the pastoral office every time the, the pastor comes in. I don't think there's any way to absolutely prevent it, but I do think there are, are things that we can can do. And, and one of the things that comes to my mind is the role of the conscience, that as, as my conscience starts to get dulled, or the biblical terms defiled, seared, as, as I tell a white lie and it, and it doesn't prick my conscience, it doesn't bother me, I can, I can move on. And the, the next time it might get a little bit easier, and then time after that, it gets a little bit easier. I think those are danger zones. Those are, you know, you're driving down the highway and the the warning lights are coming onto the dashboard. Um, I think we need to pay attention to those and work hard to keep a clear conscience, to have people to whom we can confess our sins, to have people who are willing to ask us questions that we're willing to be honest with. Um, it, it was really striking with Ravi Zacharias that to my knowledge, he wasn't a member of a local church. I don't believe his family is connected to a local church. And, you know, I mentioned that on Twitter and a number of people said, well, that might not have uh, prevented it or, uh, you know, the church might not have handled allegations well. But I think there's something intangible, almost indescribable about being connected to a local church where uh, you are accountable to other people and you are uh putting the community before yourself. So all those things, I think there's there's vertical dimensions to this and horizontal dimensions. And sometimes we can so focus on the horizontal dimensions, you know, just uh, you can achieve purity by having the strictest covenant eyes setting or having the greatest accountability system. And I think those things are important. But if you don't start with the vertical of Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. If that's not your primary motivation, if that's not your your great fear. If you're only thinking about those whom you will let down, I think you're in in a danger zone. So the vertical and the horizontal both need to be there, but the the vertical Godward direction needs to be a primary focus of our lives, or I think we're in another danger zone. I think at least one, maybe both of you read Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, and one of his themes there is uh, we, we all have a default to truth. We we tend to believe what people are telling us. And he gives all sorts of stories of when that didn't serve people well. But he also says life would be insufferable if we were all like whatever his example in the book, the guy who broke the, was it the Enron case or 
No, the Bernie Madoff. The Bernie Madoff. Yeah, it was Bernie Madoff. Guy, guy who said from the beginning, Bernie Madoff is corrupt, and he just spent 15 years of his life basically trying to tell everybody. And he yeah, was right. and he just was never going to believe him. Yep. And really suspicious, at least as Gladwell presents him in the book. And and you see that guy, and you you think, well, good for him. But Gladwell says, if everyone was like that all the time, it, life would be miserable. So we do, it, it's, it's natural, and in some ways it's commendable. We have friends, we, we believe people around us, we don't want to always assume the worst. But that's why, as you said, Justin, it's important to attend to our own conscience, because very few people wake up and, or, or never, if you're a Christian, I hope, you know, today's the day I ruin it all, today's the day I'm I'm going to go from a happy marriage, not looking at anything I shouldn't online, and I'm going to try to find uh, an affair. Now, it's all of the the little, you know, it's the 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 sociology of broken windows that when you clean up the city, you have to attend to the small things, to the graffiti, to the broken windows, because when those things are broken down, it it gives a pervasive environment where greater criminality is liable to happen. It's the same thing in our lives. I, I, I do think, you know, just back to the original question I asked, then I'll let you wrap up this segment with anything else you want to add, Colin. But it is important to realize there there are good stories out there and they don't get as much press. And sometimes we're not even at liberty to, to share them. But uh, I think all three of us know of experiences, some we would all know the same ones, and then each of us would have different instances where we've seen people in ministry and positions of power who who sin, and they do follow the steps that are necessary, and they do confess, and they do step out of the ministry for good or for an appropriate season. They do work through a presbytery. They do submit themselves to a board of elders or to an outside group, and they really do get help. And so, so there are redemption stories where people sins are forgiven and people learn and grow and understand the gospel in new and fresh ways. And that really should be the story for all of our lives because our sins may not seem so catastrophic, but all of us sin. And then I I always want people to know, maybe I'll write a blog on this sometime, but every year when I teach my pastoral ministry class, I give an assignment that people, that that their final papers, they have to write on two pastoral ministry heroes one from the past and one from the present. And so the present is usually a father, a grandfather, an RUF pastor, their childhood pastor. Most of these people are names that almost no one will know of. And yet these men, and all of women in the class who write of different uh, heroes or heroines in their own life, they write about people who are faithfully plotting, doing the right thing, name not in lights. And, 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 and I still believe that those stories are far more prevalent than the catastrophic crash and burns. We just don't, it's like the news. The news is never going to headline with normal good things happening today. The news is always oriented to change and to bad news. That's what gets our attention, not Hey, nothing went wrong in this person's, you know, walk with Jesus this week. That's not going to show up. And so there are many good stories, and it's important for us to put those 
out there and TGC has done some of that. And even just remember in our own lives, how many reasons we have to give thanks. Anything to add to this or subtract, Colin? <laughs> One thing quickly. Um, I mean, you're right about what news gravitates toward. Uh, that's, a, that's a major factor there. Um, but uh, I, the, yeah, the normative doesn't get the attention when things go the way that they should. But I also think that if most people knew what it was like to be famous and Christian, they would not want to be famous and they might think in the end they wouldn't want to be Christians. And I just, it's, it should not be something that we aspire to. If it's a, if it's a burden the Lord brings into your life that you are called by God's grace to bear for the good of the church, then so be it. But it definitely should not be something that you aspire to because that attitude itself is going to get you into trouble. But also, if you knew, it just might not be nearly as appealing as you think. And so I do think, Kevin, if we're looking overall at the differences between high-profile Christian leaders, I think there probably are higher attrition rates mm. for the high-profile Christian leaders. And like I said, you add in some of those factors like being on the road all the time, can't be a part of church. Everybody thinks that you're everybody thinks that you're great wherever that you go. Those are not what you would do if you wanted to live a, a quiet and peaceful, dignified life before the Lord and with your neighbors. And one of the indications, I think, is uh when does the extra added normal become better than the real ordinary normal. So do you desire, would you rather preach at your own congregation for your own people, or would you rather preach somewhere else in front of people you've never met? Uh, are you, and of course, you know, it, it's fine to, to be excited to go speak or excited to, to travel at times. But if I find myself wanting a trip because getting away from my my wife or my family or my ordinary circumstances is better than living in those circumstances. If I'd rather be speaking to those people than to speaking to my own people, if I'd rather be on the road than be at home, all of those are warning signs. One of the things I've prayed, and, and I'm sure, you know, I've told the Lord, Lord, I'm not sure I mean this, but I know it's a good thing to pray, so I'm going to pray it. I said, Lord, don't give me success until I don't want it anymore. So may it be that when whatever that success looks like, whatever our small fish bowls, that we don't want it and we endure. And again, we, you know, John Piper would be the first if he were here to tell us what his sins are. But but I've seen him stand in line for sometimes hours waiting for people who want to talk to him who want him to sign a book or their Bible. And someone may look at that and think, that's Christian celebrity, that's Christian fame, and only the Lord can know a man's heart if he's waiting there with a line of people to see him and he's feeling proud. But uh, I know for, for someone like Piper and for most of the brothers that I know, um, it takes a great deal of humility to actually do that when you, you'd be rather doing almost anything else than standing there and waiting and having awkward selfies and awkward phone calls, uh, awkward book signings. And so I, I think 
you're right, Colin. It's not what everyone thinks that it is. And the real joys in life and ministry are going to be those treasures that you have with the people that you know and love. Did you come up with that yourself, Kevin, just out of the blue, that don't give me success until I don't want it anymore? As far as I can recall, that, I came up with myself. That is that is helpful. I I wrote that down. I am going to pray that. I think that brings a lot of clarity. I'm going to tweet it and either do Augustine, Luther, Chesterton, or Lewis. <laughs> how, about, how, about, how about Abraham Lincoln? That sounds yeah. like Abraham Lincoln to me. Uh huh. In well, fact, that would be his political career. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you found that I stole it from someone, let me know. All right. We will uh, thank you for that. And I do appreciate you guys are good friends and uh, really do mean that and hope that you would speak into something in my life if you felt like, huh, some you're, you're different than you were when you used to go to Pizza Ranch with but us. Isn't that, but isn't that the Midwestern sensibility? I mean, we're just looking for a chance to knock you down. That's <laughs> yeah, the problem. I know, it is good. We're just, we're just looking for it. So this is a, a different topic we've talked about a lot, uh, how, how, how to get at it. What It seems, okay, let's take our world and let's say it's reformed reformed ish take people who basically agree on really important theological tenets inerrancy historic orthodoxy calvinist soteriology we would say complementarianism uh that's a lot to agree on uh the expositional preaching you know the sort of people that would or maybe they wouldn't anymore, but you know would would go to T4G, would go to TGC. Just take this kind of tribe of theological agreement with everything out there in the world. That's an awful lot to agree on. Now, we have talked somewhat on this podcast and more just privately about how much this cultural moment and even this ecclesiastical moment is made difficult because even among those who agree on an evangelical reformed-ish statement of faith do not agree on what our biggest challenges might be to that shared statement of faith. Uh, To put it very crassly, are the dangers coming more from the left from outside, from the culture, or are the dangers more pronounced from the right, perhaps within our own churches? Is the need of the hour to build bridges or to build walls? And you can find scriptural reasons and metaphors to do both of those. Uh, are we team? Do we need team compassion? Now, they're the ones who want to build bridges, and they're the ones who are saying, if, if, if we could just be gentler, more gracious, more winsome, we'd win a hearing. It's the harsh, it's the belligerence, it's the tone that's driving people away. Team compassion. Or is it team courage? Hey, look, the the Visigoths are at the walls. We better man the barricades or we're going to lose our souls. We're going to lose this next generation. And what we need is courage. And we need some people to flip over some tables and to fire some some warning shots and to take out some wolves and some goats and, and let's get on with it. And you can make a scriptural case for that. So 
I'm going to put you on the spot. Colin, make the case that the biggest danger for our theological tribe is coming from the left. Coming from the left. All right. Well, you ba- you practically quoted me earlier in my Blind Spots book, Kevin. Thank oh, you. 2015. Well, courageous, compassionate. But I add. Oh, that's right. Can I, I add commission in there? So, because I don't think that most of our issues are a simple left-right binary, but they are more of a triangle. Um, mm. And so there's there's an evangelistic focus, there's a compassion good. focus, there's a truth-telling focus. So we're not typically dealing with that pole. But the reason we, the argument that I would make for why the biggest fear or why the biggest concerns would come from the left, to answer your question, would be because... Yes, there are a lot of debates about what's happening inside the church, and yes, there are problems with things like white supremacy, explicit white supremacy, racism, and things like that inside the church and historically. The dominant message that the church hears and is catechized that our young people are growing up with is almost exclusively coming from the left. Uh, whether it's they turn on and they watch the NBA finals, whether or not they're they're going to college and the training, whether or not in their workplace, um, just what they're learning in, in public school education, growing all the way up, the consistent messages routinely reinforced through our cultural catechesis are coming from the left. That's the argument that I would make. It's not necessarily the argument that I hold, though that's only if you make me choose. I think that is a genuine major problem, and I would happily team up with anybody who saw that as a problem, and we wanted to work together from a Christian perspective uh, to combat that problem. And I gave you that one because I know that we've (laughs) talked about this some, and um, again, I don't know if we disagree, but it may just be different things we're seeing in our context or sensibilities, and we'll come back to that. But Justin, you want to try to make the case that the bigger danger for our theological tribe at the moment is from people to the right and perhaps within yeah if, if you're asking me to make that case i'll, I'll do my yeah, best just make uh, it, whether it's yours or not good forensics class yeah i think that the the sins of the left are more obvious and are more marquee sins and the sins of the right are more subtle uh, at least to those who are conservatively inclined. And therefore, because they are more subtle, they're harder to discern. Uh, it also requires looking within to see if uh, we are committing any sins of commission or omission. I think that because a lot of times those on the right are aiming for uh, good outcomes, and here I'm in interweaving the political and the theological mm-hmm. Uh, because we want, for example, to see Roe versus Wade overturned, that's a that's a policy good, I think that we would agree to. Therefore, there can be a temptation that the ends justify the means. And so uh, a subtle, sometimes not so subtle, utilitarian ethic comes at play that the end justifies the means. And because we are aiming at something virtuous, uh, we can bypass virtue in order to get there. We can uh, support people who act uh, with vice rather than virtue. Um, and we can also be, um, we can assume the gospel and then end up forgetting the gospel, always we're aiming towards ostensibly righteous aims. And I think that 
because of the subtlety of how that can work, um, because of the goodness of some of those aims, we can be taken in and not even realize that we're the proverbial frog boiling in the pot of water uh, to realize that we are uh, giving up the, the ship uh, to mix a couple of metaphors and uh, introducing all sorts of problems and compromise. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Colin, let, want to follow up on that? Well, let, let, me, let, me, <laughs> yeah, well, let me, let me, let okay, me, all right, let me try out this and then Colin, you can respond to it because I, I'm thinking about this all the time and I maybe I just need to, like you said about John Piper, I need to put some, some thoughts on paper to find out what I think and clarify. But one of my w- working supposition is that because the threat, well, number one, I think the, and you can disagree with me, I think the biggest threats are coming from what you described, Colin, from the entire cultural catechesis uh, call it woke capitalism. It's not just Hollywood. It's not just the Academy. It's now sports. It's now everything that we see in the air that we breathe. There was a good article today. I'll maybe send it to you guys. Why the young hate the Tories. So it's it's in a British context and it's more political than religious, but it dovetails with that. And you could definitely apply it to an American situation of why the conservatives in Britain are finding that younger and younger people absolutely don't don't just disagree. They, they hate what they stand for. And there's a a whole number of factors there. And again, we're not equating conservative politically always with conservative theologically, but there's some overlap in the analysis. So I think that part of what's happening is as Christian sense that they are more and more inhabiting a hostile place where their views are held with not just you know dismissal but genuine derision it is bound and is already then prompting a visceral sort of response that th- this is really threatening and we're not making up the threat and because that's there, we're we're bound to have at times maybe an overreaction or to want to defend what we ought to properly defend and do it in ways that either are ineffective, unpersuasive, or we end up defending sometimes the indefensible, or we find co-belligerence uh, with those who are in no ways really friends to Christianity, all of those are problematic. But I still maintain that the cultural air that we're breathing is eroding Christian faith from the left, and as that is already infiltrating the church, will continue to make life difficult for those of us who believe in the centrality of the gospel and the errancy of the scriptures and testing everything against the word of God. So Colin, how do you respond to that? Agree, disagree, nuance, add or subtract? I think I can agree with you while adding some depth. So you're saying I'm shallow. <laughs> well, you know, you, I implied it. I didn't say. Yeah. That. Right. Um, okay. So take three different places that I've lived. I guess my main point, Kevin, is that, I don't think 
all of these cultural conversations are national. So I think that's an important grid, but I think they can be localized. So let's take uh, South Dakota, my first 18 years. If you're really obsessed with racial issues, especially black-white issues in South Dakota, that's probably going to be a strange emphasis of your ministry. Now, there's going to be different emphases, such as Native American concerns that aren't as much of a pressing issue in Alabama, where I live now. But that's just black-white racial dynamics, not a major part of life and ministry in South Dakota. Okay, fast forward to Evanston, Illinois. If you're not really concerned about what you described, woke capitalism, uh, cultural Marxism in educational institutions, uh, all, intersectionality, if you're not concerned about that in Evanston, Illinois, then I, I don't know. I don't know how you can be faithfully discipling people that are coming through your church or through your campus ministry. That's a, that's a major problem. I'm going to leave out most of my years in, in Wheaton because I didn't really understand Wheaton very well <laughs> for the eight years that I lived there. I, I never was a part of a Christian college. Stream. Yeah. Well, yeah, te- thank you, Justin. Technically, as Carl Henry said, I lived in a suburb of Wheaton. Illinois. <laughs> you could just hear I thought that. Wheaton was a suburb of South Holland. <laughs> you Dutch. That's typical. Yeah, uh-huh. Everything revolves around Amsterdam. Okay, so and then in Birmingham, if you don't care about racial issues, something is something is off. Yeah. Given that history. Fair so that's enough. one thing. It's we're not always having national conversations. The local emphasis can change. The other point I want to make is that I don't the Bible does I, I'm not so much interested in the left-right polarity, though that can be helpful sometimes. I'm not entirely dismissing that. I mentioned earlier my 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 triangular approach. But then I also want to I want to point out that I think, and and Kevin, Justin, you guys can push back on me in this because I don't want to overemphasize something here. But I think on the main, the Bible is more concerned about what happens inside God's people than what happens outside. It seems to assume the outside is, is going to be hostile and they're going to be problematic for us, but that it's not insurmountable if God's people will simply be God's people, if they will just trust God and they will live with holiness. There won't be any problem there. They can withstand whatever the world brings to them. I think that's an Old Testament and New Testament dynamic. So instead of saying left and right, I typically want to say three ways, compassion, courage, uh, commission. That's just my way of describing it. But then I also want to say we should be more concerned that God's people are living faithfully than we should be about the threat that the world brings on God's people. Though I don't want to make this not a sharp dichotomy because, of course, what happens in the world is going to affect God's people. Right. But that goes back to what your point is earlier, Kevin. The confusing part for me is watching Christians team up with non-Christians because they imagine going after common enemies inside the church. That's what's confusing to me right now. And yes, I, I do think that we genuinely have a lot of disagreements inside the church, but what's confusing to me is how we so immediately gloss over all the commonality that you started this with, Kevin, and latch on to some of those supposed or alleged disagreements. Some of them are real. Some of them are supposed and alleged. And that we use outside non-Christian voices to be able to, to sort of trump that. I didn't mean to use that specific word, but I mean, trump the it's unity a, of the church. It's just a verb. It's just a verb. I mean, right. but that is the atmosphere 
where things are so politicized that it seems like our Trinitarian unity, our unity in Christ, doesn't seem to matter if you disagree on a political issue. It seems then all of a sudden you have more in common with atheists um, who don't who don't believe in God at all because you're you're focused on politics. Justin, what do you what do you think? Push push yeah, back on me there. You're... If you're interested in that line of reasoning, uh, Samuel James recently did a, a letters and liturgy piece along those lines, which uh, I, I think is worth Unequally reading. woped, yes. Yeah. Uh, and for listeners who, who like to hear Colin Hansen muse about these topics, he actually wrote a book for Crossway <laughs> entitled Blind Spots uh, on, on this issue of of seeing things from only one perspective. Colin, I, I think you're, you're right um, in the main let me complexify it even further. What do you do talking about within a single church? I think that there's a significant generational divide there. So, you know, in uh, the church setting that I'm a part of, am I more concerned about threats from the right or the left? I think it depends on if you're talking about the 60 year old guy who's been there for 30 years versus the 17 year old who's going off to college in a year. Uh, You know, to me, I'm not super worried about the 60 year old, uh, with with certain temptations in the same way that I am with 17-year-olds. So I agree with you. The more that we try to present just, you know, is it yes, is it no, is it left, is it right? What's the one thing happening? I think I agree with Kevin there, but I agree with the complexification. Once you get into real life and you actually ask what it's like in a local church setting, it depends a lot upon age and gender and geography and um in history, experience, suspicions, dispositions, race, all of those sort of things. Yeah. And Kevin, let, I'm sort of all out here. Well, I, I, one, one word there, because you really raise an, an issue that allows me to nuance something. Let's take my own church as an example of what we went through in this last summer on racial issues. Mentioned there, of course, we're in Birmingham. So the racial issues are going to be very significant with our history. And we had some people respond in ways that I thought were extremely unhelpful from the right. Um, and we, we've, we've tried to address those issues as much as possible. But what I said to other elders was, for every one person that I see spinning way off to the right, I bet we have five or six people who are more likely to spin off to the left. And that's because our demographic even in this um, in, in this Birmingham environment, is actually is very young, and a lot of them are very much oriented toward a lot of the justice messages. Some of which are really good, some of which are very unhelpful. And so, even in that even that environment, as I'm looking as a pastor, I'm thinking, yes, of course, I'm really upset to watch some of my church leaders be enamored with neo-Confederate writings. I'm very upset about that. But then I'm also afraid, even more afraid, just numerically speaking, of people I see where, wow, this has simply gone altogether into left-wing politics, and I don't even see the gospel here anymore. So I, I think that's lost, Kevin, in how we in how we play these things out on Twitter and how we play these things out on websites. I don't under. That, I guess that's what I'm so confused about. So help, as Justin said, help set us straight. Well, no, because... I'm not going to set you straight. I think that's really good, and I appreciate what you said, Colin. It helps me clarify my earlier point about, you know, threats from the left on the outside. Uh, I, you know, I should have made clear. I'm not thinking so much of, boy, what's happening in 
at Princeton, and that has to have us all alarmed, but more, you know, where do we see these ideas, whether they're formal theories or they're simply the air that we breathe or the messages that we receive every commercial break, how are they being unwittingly assumed in the church? So I totally agree. You see it in Paul's letters. What he's concerned about is not so much, now he's concerned if, you know, you see this in Revelation, a persecuting government, but they're most concerned with the church then standing fast to that, not capitulating, not giving in. So the church very much has to. But if I can footnote my book, which sorry wasn't by Crossway, but the one that no one reads anymore, Why We're Not Emergent, you know, I wrote about the seven letters of the seven churches. I think that's very instructive, not what I wrote, but those first uh, chapter two and three in Revelation, because they do describe and you see the example. You see Jesus, he does not talk to every church in the same way. And so he can say to Ephesus, you've lost your first love. That's the message some churches need to hear. And, and you can say it's it's love for the lost, love for the Lord, love for evangelism, all those things. But then there's Thyatira and Pergamum, which are over-tolerant. He says, Jesus has this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. You're too tolerant of things. That's not a message that many people are going to hear. So it takes a lot of pastoral wisdom and nuance. And so here's a recurring theme on this podcast, and it's the the blessing and the challenge of our digital age, because you tweet, you blog. At, at, at one time, you're talking to everybody, but you can't help but have in your mind what you see in Birmingham, what what you know, maybe I grew up with in the RCA or what Justin's seeing. So we're all bringing to our message, which ostensibly is going everywhere, our own set of concerns and issues. And so it means that as readers, we need to be discerning. As writers, we need to be careful. But it also presents the challenge that so often we get, not just using a royal we, one-track mind in how we read things. And there's there's a way to be helpful. We've talked about this too. There's a way to be sensitive. Okay, how would someone who's been a victim of this read it? How would a single person, how would a married person, how would uh, how would black, white, male, female? There, there's a certain sensitivity that's appropriate. And then there's also a, a place where we can no longer write or communicate with any real verve or unction because we're assuming that everyone is going to bring to bear their own hurts. And so in one of my many aborted blog posts, Justin may have more than I do. We may be running neck and neck. Perhaps Jonathan Lehman is up there too, although he he's he's winning with aborted tweets. World's worst tweet draft. <laughs> Thanks, Justin, for setting him straight on that. At least he circulates them beforehand, before yes. they go public. But that was, you know, a blog post that I, I'll have to finish sometime is just saying we expect our communication to be uh, at once universal and at the same time so personal that it's as if you're my pastor speaking to me. So people will say, well, would you, is that how you would speak to someone who was, had suffered, you know, a, a loss by suicide and they're, con- well, no, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not having a counseling session with that person right now. So all of this comes into, I think there is, 
Uh, it's incumbent upon us as writers, but it also means a certain realism as readers to understand. And probably means for someone like you in your position with Gospel Coalition, Colin, and Justin at Crossway, I'm sure you have to think about because you you are trying to reach a wide audience, trying to gauge what is the need for this cultural moment. And, uh, you know, I haven't set you straight or figured it out. I'll pray for you. And um, you know that I'll tell you when there's things I like. And I, I, I've told you when there's things I didn't like. That's true. <laughs> so thank you, brother. I think you do that more with Colin than with me. <laughs> well, that's because your books, you know, they're already out and they're... <laughs> Look, it's part of my job description. I don't mind it. I expect that if you're trying... Mean, you're exactly right, Kevin, about the internet. I, I think we underestimate what a, what role that plays here. It's not going to be possible to make everybody happy, but at the same time, that shouldn't be your goal is to make everybody unhappy. So there's a, there's a medium in there of you're not trying to offend people, but some people it's, it's just going to happen if you're doing what you think is the right thing to do. If you're recognizing that threats come from multiple directions. Last question, tying it all together, books. Give me uh, two or three. We'll just limit it to three. I, I could, we could come up with 30. But books that you think would be helpful in forming a political philosophy. These can be Christian books, Christian classics, new books, or you know, could just be classic of moral political philosophy. Um, any, any Anything you want. So don't limit yourself to... You know, they have to be three famous Christian books. But if someone said, you know, uh, a recent college grad likes to read, hey, what, what are some books that you think would be good for me as I try to formulate my own way of thinking as a Christian about politics? And it's probably going to be somewhat American-centric because that's who we are and where we are. Give me two or three books. Justin? Yeah, I think uh, one that I would start out with would be a book that I think is still available print on demand, but it's Greg Forster's The Contested Public Square. Uh, that's a good book. The Crisis of Christianity and Politics uh, put up by IVP several years ago. And I think one thing that's nice about that book is that it gives uh, a historical overview and you know, uh, introduces readers to the great classic works uh, from Plato's Republic to Augustine's City of God and uh, you know, moves eventually to medieval thinkers and uh, reformation and natural law and religious liberty. I think it's just a really nice introduction to who the main players are and the history written from a confessionally uh, Christian perspective. Uh, another one would be David, and I'm sure I'm going to say his last name wrong because I've never had to say it out loud before, but Quasis, uh, the Canadian reformed political theorist, uh, political visions and illusions. Uh, a really interesting, helpful book working through all sorts of things from progressivism to Burkean conservatism to socialism to communism and looking at how all of them as secular theories fall short of the glory of God and uh, have elements of idolatry and shows how the gospel offers a, a better answer. A, a really, I think, nuanced, interesting, informed book. Justin, would I, um, I have, I've, I've heard that book mentioned a lot, and I admit I haven't read it. Would So uh, it sounds like a book I would really like, and then I, I have one or two 
you know, little yellow flags going up. Do you think I would like that book? I think you'd probably have little yellow flags going up on it, <laughs> but I think you'd probably like it as well. I think one of the uh, potential critiques of it is that it can make it seem as if even though all of these ideologies fall short of the glory of God, maybe some of them fall further short than others. Uh, I think he believes that. I don't know how clear that always is, but I think for somebody of his knowledge and background as a, a neo-Kyperian, I think his analysis uh, will make you think, and I think you'd probably enjoy it, even if you had a few qualms. Does does he present what he thinks is the biblical model with no idolatry, and has that model ever been uh, a governing philosophy on the planet? Uh, I don't think that he thinks that we have achieved utopia. Um, to what degree he lays out his alternative perspective and how realistic it is, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I wasn't I saying utopia. So I, I asked the question yeah. in an, an unhelpful way. So, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. And I've, I mean, you and, and others that I know and trust really like the book. You just are getting my one, my, my yellow flag, as I've heard it used sometimes, if, it, so I'm not critiquing the, the book because I haven't read it. Is if it's as if we can we can transcend all actual human forms of government. Um, you know, it's like the famous quip, whether it's true or not. When when D. James Kennedy, someone didn't like evangelism explosion, and he said, "Well, I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing evangelism." So it's sort of. Uh, Okay, what is the you know de democracy is is the worst form of government except for all the others? I've heard that quote from Kennedy attributed to Moody. Yeah, it, I know uh, I've heard it too. <laughs> I, mean, I think Moody got it from Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, to just confuse people here. <laughs> yeah, I think originally it was Luther though. <laughs> well, Lincoln before that. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, Justin. Think you had a third one, Justin? Uh, was anybody else going to say Conflict Divisions by... Uh, no, Sol? it's all I'm you. saving that you. for you. No, Thomas Sowell is not a Christian, uh, at least uh, an Orthodox one, but I think that that book is very helpful and maybe a, an interesting place to start if somebody doesn't necessarily want a Christian perspective but wants to see a, a relatively non-polemical, even-handed book that tries to lay out why do we disagree? And why is it that uh, the Democrats tend to line up on one set of issues and Republicans on other set of issues? And he argues that there's a difference between the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision, and that we simply have different presuppositions about uh, what is entailed by freedom and by justice and by power and equality. We, we're operating with different definitions and different ways to get to our desired ends. So it's just a very interesting book. Soul can be... Uh, polemical in some of his other works and he's kind of become a punching bag on some of the racial issues but in this book in particular i think it's a just a really nice introduction it doesn't say everything that needs to be said but i think it ends up being eye-opening for the different presuppositions at play uh, among various parties when it comes to political ideology that's great uh, I, that that leads into my list and we'll give colin then the last along those same lines I would recommend 
Yuval Levine's book, The Great Debate, Edwin Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of Right and Left. Similar pedagogy as the Soul book, except Levine is looking at just two thinkers, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, who overlapped and interacted some with each other. Now, Americans will hear Thomas Paine and immediately think common sense, and he's the, the hero who sparked the revolution. When you read Thomas Paine, you quickly uh, probably want to sift out some of the dross along with you know holding him up to be a champion of independence, at least on this side of the pond, because uh, Yuval makes the, the case that really the birth of the left is more with the ideas of Thomas Paine and the birth of right is with Edmund Burke. Uh, so again, it's just very helpful, and uh, he he's not arguing one way or another. People who read his books know he's a, a thoughtful, conservative, or center-right sort of voice, but I think that's a very good historical book to understand and gives you a sense for where right and left come from. Ultimately, though, you know, they, they do come from the French Assembly and where they were sitting on the right or on the left. That's why we speak of those directions, and... To make things very confusing in America, the the red and the blue should really be switched. Blue was the was the color for the the conservative royalists, right? And red has always been the color for liberals. Red is the color of communism, socialism. So whoever first put the red blue map up with Republicans and Democrats have not done us any historical favors. And then a uh, a Christian book. Again, I don't know how to say his last name for sure. David Innes, I-N-N-E-S, teaches at the King's College, Christ and the Kingdoms of Men. I believe he's also ordained in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This came out just last year, I think. Again, I don't agree with every last thing in the book. He's a bit more critical about classic liberalism than, than I might be, but classic liberalism is fair to be criticized. But I think uh, if someone was just saying, I'd like from, you know, a, a reformed voice, how, how would I begin to think of what a political philosophy might look like? That's a good book to start. And uh, I found it helpful. And then the third book, I tried to think of what, what would be a classic? What would be something that would be helpful? So I thought about maybe Edmund Burke, Reflections on the Revolution in France, but I'll go with the Federalist Papers. Uh, every American should read at least some of the Federalist Papers. And something is wrong with our educational system. If you can get through college, really if you can get through high school even, and you've never read any of the Federalist Papers. Is that you, Colin? None. Never signed. None. I was yes. a history major. Never and you signed. never, so. Never signed. You know, it's a, it's if a, there's a graphic novel version though. That would be <laughs> <laughs> Justin, there's probably an audible version that you could listen to. Yeah, that's true. Or a Wikipedia page or a Wikipedia page. But even, so these are, uh, a series of, I should know the exact number offhand if it's 90 or what it is, how many articles that, uh, Hamilton and James Madison, John Jay published. It's, uh, on the ratification of the federal constitution, but it gets into political theory. And again, it's not that you say this is lifted from the pages of scripture. Obviously it's not, it's, it's drawn from all different sources, but uh, it's very 85 federalist papers. Thank you, Justin. Just looked that up. I was pretty close off the top of my head. Uh, 
it's it's really helpful to just say, okay, here are here are some of the key founders trying to think, not from scratch, but a new nation with uh, centuries of natural law, of basic Protestant assumptions, and new Enlightenment philosophy. How do and ideas of classical republicanism from Rome? How do they think about government? And whether you agree or disagree with all of it, I think that's extremely helpful, especially it is for understanding our American system. Colin, you get the last word. What are your three books? You get to go last at one hour and 12 minutes in. By the way, Kevin, Price is Right rules. You went over, so you lost. Oh, that's okay. true. Okay. All right. Um, I start with two essays. I teach, teach a class on Christ and culture for my church, and we cover politics in there. Two essays or two documents I assign, Lincoln's second inaugural address and King's letter from Birmingham jail. Good. I think the two best examples of public theology in American history, which is notable given the ambiguities we have about, um, about King's life and Lincoln's faith and orthodoxy. So still, nevertheless, as documents, they are not inspired uh, in that biblical sense, but they are inspiring in that sense of understanding the essential elements of that sort of a rebirth of freedom that was provided through the through the conflagration of the Civil War and then ultimately renewed uh, through the Civil Rights Movement. So related to that, uh, I commend Taylor Branch's America in the King Years trilogy uh, for shaping a lot of my my perspective on 20th century politics, at least, and the, the, the Civil Rights uh, Movement. And there's a one-volume small version of oh, that. Oh, there is. I didn't yes, know that. Which I've okay. read. Well, yeah, the, the three volumes are like twenty four hundred pages. Yeah, so yeah. that's the that's a that's a wise it's a wise decision. Uh, okay, so the three books I wanted to mention. First one, will be Senator. Ben oh, those Sapp. weren't even the books. Oh, no, and you're no, you're no, critiquing no, me for prices. Uh, no, no, I, get, I I got to go last. So You've mentioned. That's... Okay, okay. <laughs> the the uh, I want to mention Ben Sass's book "Them: Why We Hate Each Other and How to." Heal. Really That's from 2018. Reason I mentioned Senator Sass is two reasons. One, because it is easy to sit in the distance and to muse on these things. I have a lot of respect for people who are inside trying to implement them, even under very easy to criticize circumstances like Senator Sass is in. So that's the first book. Also, the second reason for that is because. I resonate strongly with his Midwestern localism. So his Friday night in the high school gym feeling mm-hmm. that he describes with community uh, could not resonate more strongly with me. And that is the kind of pol- politics and community I was catechized into without knowing it and remains a uh, very, very much my political philosophy today of the, of the strength of local communities. That's the, Tocquevillian uh, part of me that I didn't realize. Another thing I wasn't assigned until college. Um, second book I want to mention is uh, James Davison Hunter's To Change the World. actually edited a book uh, five years ago called Revisiting Faithful Presence to Change the World. And uh, uh, Al Mohler, Greg Forrester, Karen Ellis, Ramon Pierre, Daniel Strange, Hunter Baker, a number of other people contributed to that book. I don't know if I'm still convinced with his philosophy of top-down uh, politics uh, about the the influence of the elites and the need to be a faithful presence among the elites to bring political change. 
What I will say is that I don't know where to find this in his canon, but in personal conversation with Professor Hunter, he really did more than anybody else to change my emphasis on politics away from campaigns and individual politicians and more toward the atmospheric conditions of our society. And that has been a godsend to me through the last six years, to not see these things as mere manifestations of a candidate or a moment, but something that's much bigger to our culture. We've we've been talking, the three of us, about David Brooks's recent essay in The Atlantic about our cultural moment and politics, and that would be a good practiced example of what I've, I've learned from Hunter and tried to implement. Last book then, nobody will be surprised to hear me recommend The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Fine if you're a pastor dealing with these issues politically within your church, even though Haidt is not a Christian, uh, not a believer in God, and not a conservative, he will give you a lot of ammunition to understand the way people think tribally and the way they think sort of um, instinctively and intuitively. And that will that will help you to navigate very difficult situations. So, yeah, those are those are my three books, a couple essays, and a trilogy of books. Yeah, you mentioned several things that you assigned for your Sunday school class and other books you had edited to get to as a preface to your book. So it was very, very sneaky. We we hear many comments that people want to hear more from Justin Taylor on this podcast. And uh, Justin, any last word of wisdom you have for us? No, other than thank you, Mom, for writing in to complain to Kevin. I appreciate that. And that's why people want to hear from Justin. (laughs) The dry jokes that we all know so well are merely everybody's being introduced to them now. Yes, the tweets uh, or the emails or the texts, and you go, "Uh, wait, was that a joke? I'm not sure. And then was the that joke on me? So thank you. If you have to wonder, they usually are. <laughs> In, indeed. All right. Thank you, men, for uh, joining the discussion again. And thank you to all of our listeners. Check us out in your various streaming apps or podcasts and subscribe and like us. And if you don't like us, just, just pray for us then. All right. We hope to see you again next time. Until then, glorify God and join forever and read a good book.